mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today will be taken from the reading in the Gospel of Mark. You may be seated. We begin today with the word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light and you have sent us forth with the message of light into this dark world. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would make us bold and joyful and faithful in proclaiming your word, trusting that this word accomplishes your purposes. Be with us this day, Lord. Help us to hear this word in faith. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question here this morning, something for you to think about a little bit. How is it that you came to faith? How did you come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I know there are some pretty incredible stories out there, some incredible what we call testimonies out there that speak to the way we've come to know Jesus. I mean, we always see this, right? When the Gideons come to visit us every year and the Gideons will show us a video about somebody who was sort of at the end of their rope, they had nowhere else to turn, they were at a, in a hotel room thinking of how they might end it all, and then they found that Gideon's Bible. And they started to read through it. And in it, they found the hope and salvation that was theirs in Jesus and Christ used his word to place faith in their heart and hope back into their lives. Or we see stories in the scriptures of a guy like St. Paul, who before he was St. Paul was known as Saul. And Saul went throughout the world trying to kill Christians. His job was to end the ministry of Christ and to put Christians to death until Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And there Christ saw him, uh, he blinded him, uh, Paul was taken, at the time Saul was taken to a home where he met a man named Ananias who preached to him, who baptized him, and the scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he began to become the greatest of all the church's evangelists in the history of the world. Or we'll hear stories of missionaries who, who go to Africa and they, they come to these tribes that are full of demon worship and, and uh, these strange forms of voodoo and all these kinds of things. And they go in and they preach the gospel and they drive the demons away. And these stories are amazing and they're wonderful and these stories are beautiful and they're very exciting. We love to hear these testimonies. And I don't want to take away from them whatsoever today because I think they're quite amazing, but I don't know about you, but for the reality, the reality for me is this, that those testimonies are not mine. My testimony is not quite that thrilling. It's actually rather mundane. I mean, don't get me wrong. My testimony goes like this. I was full of sin and rebellion, evil intentions and wicked motives. My heart was full of darkness and sin. I hated God. And I was using others for my own selfish ends. At this point in my life, I was roughly about eight days old. And then my parents took me to the waters of baptism. And there water was poured on my head in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus made some promises to me. He promised me that everything he did on the cross was for my sake. And all the benefits that were earned for uh, me on the cross were then granted to me in that baptism. He forgave my sins and he promised me everlasting life. All the hope of heaven was poured out on my head in that moment. I was crucified with Christ and raised to a new life. And me? I don't remember any of it. What happened was I probably cried a little bit. My head got wet. Likely I took a nap afterwards. But I will tell you this, I guarantee you this, it was completely adorable because I was a very cute baby. Uh, but other than that, 
It was pretty mundane. A little bit of water, some words spoken, nothing very impressive to the eyes of the world. And we, we hear this all the time when we talk about baptizing babies, you know. How can a handful of water do such amazing things? And for those of us who remember our catechism class, we know that it's not just the water, but it's the word of God, the promise that he's placed in the water that does all of these amazing things. But at the end of the day, when the world sees this, it's not all that thrilling. It doesn't really capture the world's attention. It's pretty mundane, pretty normal, not that exciting to our eyes. This is a constant problem that we have in the world, that when it comes to God, when it comes to dealing with God, we want Him to be exciting. We want Him to be thrilling. We want to be overwhelmed by Him. We think we find God in, in sort of the, the ecstatic celebrations and the joys of life. I think this is one of the problems we have in the church right now, and I think this is really one of the problems that the church has, that it begins to look more and more like the world, because we live in a world that craves excitement. That, that is addicted to entertainment. And we've convinced ourselves that our God must be the same way. He must be exciting and entertaining and constantly thrilling us. After all, if this God is truly all-powerful and awesome and terrifying, the God who moves mountains and creates hurricanes and raises the dead, then shouldn't I capture glimpses of that? Every time I study my Bible, every time I pray, every time I go to worship, shouldn't my conversion be something that is world-altering and life-changing, that is thrilling to the eyes and makes me experience all kinds of incredible emotions? I mean, we're expecting to deal with this God in ways with experiences uh, that simply cannot be matched. And yet the reality is that far too often, far more often, God shows up in normal, plain, mundane ways. Ways that just aren't that thrilling to the eyes of the world. And Jesus has always dealt with this. This is even happening back when Jesus was doing his ministry. We hear this account today from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. And he shows up there and he starts preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to repent because he is the Messiah. And he's preaching and he's performing some miracles and driving out demons. And people are looking at them, and they're not so sure. After all, when they hear the word Messiah, they don't think of this guy they grew up with who used to be the carpenter in town. They think of a warlord. They think of somebody riding in on a mighty horse with an army behind him to drive out the Romans, to, to overwhelm the world, to set up a, a powerful, mighty throne in Jerusalem so Israel can then run and control the world. They're thinking in terms of, of power and glory and political might. They want a political liberator. And Jesus shows up, preaching repentance and not looking all that thrilling. And they say this, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, who does this guy think he is claiming to be the Messiah? The Messiah is going to look a lot more thrilling and exciting and powerful than this guy. How can a carpenter do such great things? But of course, this is always the scandal with Jesus. He doesn't look like that much to the world. See, the Jesus we're looking for, it's just not the Jesus we get. 
to the people of his hometown? He looked like Joseph's son. You know, that guy who used to fix our doors and build us chairs and tables. To the religious leaders, he looked like another sort of false messiah who was leading people away and causing all kinds of trouble for the Jews. To Pontius Pilate, he just looked like somebody else's problem. And his word, his preaching, even his work of forgiveness and healing, even his casting out of demons, this wasn't enough to impress the people. They wanted more. They wanted more proof. This just looked too mundane to them. But this isn't just the problem of Jesus' hometown friends and family. This isn't just the problem for us here today in, in America. This is a problem constantly wherever the gospel is preached that the Jesus people are looking for isn't always the Jesus they get. St. Paul himself, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, he talked about this in his book to the Corinthians. Paul wrote a number of letters to the Corinthian church. We have at least two of them. Uh, we have two of them uh, in our Bible. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, he talks about why so many people are struggling to believe in this crucified and risen Jesus. And he describes two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks. He says the Jews have a hard time believing because Jews demand signs. That is, they say, if you claim to be the Messiah, prove it. Give us another miracle. Do more. Perform and prove that you are the Messiah. Jews demand signs. Greeks demand wisdom. That is, if this guy truly has come down from heaven to show us the truth, if this guy really has come to reveal God to us, then he should be giving us the secrets of the universe. He should be giving us all the wisdom and the knowledge that we can have so that we can control everything and have all of this power. Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. And I think to myself as Americans, what would Paul say to us? If he were to write a letter to us here in Escondido, what would Paul say to us? He would say something like this, I think. Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom, and Americans desire comfort and success. If this Jesus is going to be worth following, then he'd better fix my problems, give me security, and ease my troubles. He better give me the job I want and the life I've always desired. He better give me comfort, and he better give me success in this world. Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom, Americans demand success and comfort, and Paul writes, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. Sort of useless to us Americans because he doesn't necessarily help us on the road to success. We don't get the Jesus we're looking for. We get the Jesus who was crucified for the sins of the world. Jesus has come to die for you. He's not come to make your life easier or happier or more comfortable or to help you out on the road to success. He's not here, in other words, to polish your idols, but to shatter them. We have a hard time believing in this Jesus. Certainly the people in Jesus' hometown had a hard time believing in him because he wasn't the Jesus they were looking for. So Jesus, after doing some miracles there and doing some work there, it says, he looked at those people and he marveled because of their unbelief. So how does he react? What does he do? When he can't seem to convince his hometown that he's the Messiah, when he doesn't give us the success we want and we get frustrated uh, with him, what does he do? Does he, does he change? Does he give up and quit? Does he adjust his message and his methods? Does he change his mission? No. You know what he does? He leaves the town behind. 
Now, now it's Jesus, so he's not going to just leave the town behind without helping some people. He's not going to let the unbelief of the majority prevent him from helping the needs of the few. So he heals some in need, and he casts out a few demons. But the reality is Jesus is simply not deterred by the unbelief of his hometown. He's no pessimist. He knows that as he continues to do his work, the gospel is going to spread. So Jesus, it says, goes to the other towns around the area, and he continues to teach. He continues to do his miracles. And then he brings his disciples along with him. These people won't listen, but he's going to send his disciples out further around, and he starts sending them out two by two. But notice how he does it. He doesn't do, and do it in sort of flashy, fancy ways. He sends them out to preach and gives them authority over the evil demons. And now, it's really fascinating, because in those days, when, when these sort of would-be messiahs would come, to down, would come to town, when people would come selling religion, very often they would show up and they would look pretty fancy. They would come and show off their wealth, and they would come and share their food and show, much, so, uh, show how much success they would sort of had uh, with their religion, and people would start to, to listen. So Jesus says to his 12, when you go out, don't take any food with you, no bread. Don't put a bunch of money in your pockets, and don't wear fancy belts, and don't wear two tunics. Don't show off anything. For one reason, I want you to trust me, as Jim did very nicely here in the children's message today. I want you to trust that I will provide for you. Second, I, want you not to, I, I don't want people to pay attention to you and your wealth and your success and your money. I want them to hear the word, so go forth with nothing but the word. See, the demons, they're not impressed by bread, but they flee at my word. Faith is created not by fancy belts, Jesus says, but through hearing. So go with nothing but the word. And they do. And what happens? The demons flee at the preaching of the word. And people start coming to faith. Which makes me think that, that no matter what route you took to Jesus, no matter how you came to faith, probably better said, no matter how faith came to you, whether it was through uh, waters of baptism as an infant or some miraculous conversion experience you may have had, at the end of the day, the reason that you have faith in Jesus Christ is simply because somebody preached that gospel message into your ears. It's simply because the word has been given to you. It, it, and it's not because God needed, this, uh, excuse me, the Holy Spirit didn't require fancy dress or material success to capture your heart. He simply used the word, and it worked, because that word, though it, looks power, uh, though it looks sort of weak and mundane, is powerful. It's the sort of word that creates the world and universes. It's the sort of, world that, uh, sort of word that raises the dead, and it's the sort of word that produces faith in your heart. Jesus came to you not in glorious might and power, but hidden in this word, this word that was found perhaps on the lips of your parents as they work to do devotions with you every night. Maybe uh, that word came to you from your grandparents who wrote you letters reminding you of how much Jesus loves you and how much he has forgiven all of your sins. It, it didn't come necessarily uh, from fancy successful people. Maybe it came to you from a Sunday school teacher or a VBS teacher whose life wasn't all that great who was facing a lot of difficulties and a lot of trials, but they took the time to, to speak the gospel to you in that class. And you came to know Jesus that way. 
Maybe it came to you from a coworker, from a neighbor, from a literal carpenter <laughs> who you knew and they simply told you about Christ. Maybe from a long-winded pastor. But in some way, that word got to you. That word captured your heart. These people didn't show up to you with power or success or glory. But they did come to you only with the words of eternal life. And that's how you came to believe. Which, by the way, you start to think about this, it, it kind of gets rid of that argument I hear a lot from people who will say things like, well, listen, I can't talk to people about Jesus. I can't do this. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an expert on the Bible. I don't know enough to talk to people about Jesus. Okay. But you've got to know something about yourself. You should know this, that every single day you are a person that Jesus Christ is working through for the good of his creation. Uh, whatever your job, whatever your calling, your vocation is, as a parent, as a child, as a grandparent, as a, as a lawyer or, or a CPA or as a teacher or a police officer, whatever calling you have in this life, whatever job you may have, God is working through you, do you know this, as an instrument for the good of his creation. No matter what your lot in life, God is using I can hear somebody saying it to me now. Oh, yeah, Pastor? Well, I'm retired, so God doesn't use me anymore. I just sleep all the time. I can hear somebody saying this to me. Let me tell you, I heard this marvelous uh, line the other day, and, and it just captivates me, and I think there's something beautiful in this truth, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be more enthralled by the stories we hear about what God did with the prayers of grandmothers than we are perhaps going to be excited by the African missionary stories that seem to captivate us so much right now. I think there's something to it. be amazed at what God can do with what looks so weak to us, but for him is this means of being so powerful. I mean, whoever you are, God is working through you for the good of his creation, so why can't he use your mouth to tell the good news? You can tell people that the Lord Jesus has died for them. You can tell people that Christ is risen for them. That's, this is why we sang all four verses of that hymn, by the way, today. I love that line. You can tell the love of Jesus. You can say he died for all. You can do this. It's not hard. God is using you to do this. And if you don't tell people, who will? I don't know what you're thinking. You might say something like, well, listen, okay, fine, but why are they going to listen to me? I'm nothing special. Well, you know who, in the eyes of the world, you might not be special. You just might not. But you know who else didn't look very special to the eyes of the world? That carpenter Jesus and his fishermen disciples. Yet look what God accomplished through them. Yeah, you might not be all that special in the eyes of the world, but let me tell you who you are. You are a person who is died for by Jesus Christ. You are a person who is baptized and beloved of God. And you have in your possession a life-saving message that brings light into the darkness and hope into a hopeless world. You have this message. And you can share it with others. It is a message that you get to hear even this morning again, that, that me, a mere bumbling pastor, gets to announce to you today. A message that simply says this. Repent. Repent of your fear and repent of your silence. And hear this good news. Jesus Christ, that carpenter from Nazareth, was no less than God. And he has carried your sins to the cross. He cast out your demons with the word and water and baptism. He has nourished you and nurtured you as you've learned the scriptures and Bible study, as you have heard the word proclaimed into your ears. 
He feeds you with his very divine, resurrected body and blood in a mundane sip of wine and a kind of stale wafer. He has used everyday folks to serve your needs both inside and outside of the church. And believe it or not, he is using you to do the same. You know what the reality is? It just might not look like that much to the world. I'll tell you what. The angels who worship this resurrected carpenter, they sing for joy over all that God is doing through you. Perhaps more importantly, all that he has done for you. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have called us to serve. St. Paul calls service in your kingdom a grace, and Lord, we thank you that you have granted this grace to us. Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful, that we would be found bold, that we would be found fearless like the apostles going forth, proclaiming your good news so that others might come to faith in Jesus. Lord, teach us to trust the power of your word, which has accomplished so much for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.